0: Back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 133, The Final Retreat. Before we begin, I just wanted to say thank you once again to everyone who has supported this podcast over the last few years my patrons who give their financial help, and all of you who listen and offer suggestions and comment. Uh, without you guys, I wouldn't be able to do this, and certainly. This podcast would be a lot less for that, so I just wanted to open up by thanking all of you. So let's begin the episode, shall we? The winter of 1407-1408 was a hard one in Europe. It was said that many animals had died, many of the fields, farms, orchards, all of the areas that you would expect to offer nourishments and sustenance to places across europe were frozen over had been snowed over and the winter was long and it was a time when cycles of growing seasons were obviously very important to the average medieval person you certainly wouldn't be able to survive without uh, having a shift in food in this period of time and pretty much up until modern refrigeration comes into effect in the 1800s Uh, We don't really have a a circumstance where you have natural access to, say, wheat, flour, and various other things that goes all through the year. And in fact, by the time you reach spring, usually you'll have a situation where people will be out of the basics and relying strictly on meat diets or on very specific types of grains and things like fruit and vegetables will be in short supply. So all of that then gets stretched out even longer when you have a winter like this because, of course, you don't have the opportunity to grow those things and you don't have a supply line that offers, you know, much as we do today, if you're thinking about it from a modern perspective, depending upon where you are in the world, if your Apple... Orchards have a frost, or if your oranges say from California or from Spain, as examples, if they're hit by a bad growing season, people can always get them from other locations. You can always find other sources for them. I know for us here in Canada, we find that uh, fruit generally comes from South America during the winter months. These things are obviously something of a modern thing, and maybe to a degree, could have existed in Roman times, but in the medieval period, there's no such thing as this. There's no massive national movement to ship goods across vast distances. And so you don't have that same type of thing happening. Certainly not to the degree you will have, obviously, now in a modern mercantile system. But at that point, like I said, when your reliance on fresh vegetables, and fresh food is dependent so much on this cycle, to lose that cycle in these situations is the reason why you end up having things like disease running rampant, you have problems with uh, starvation, as those in society that can't afford to have the cycle break start to die out, and that will affect the chain all over the place, because of course everyone's reliant upon this. So you have this massively harsh winter to go along with everything else. Now keep that all in mind when you think of the Welsh in this situation, because this is a country that's been going under a war for the better part of a decade now. And throughout it, all parties have been raiding, pillaging, killing, stealing men and material from Farms, from peasants, from every sort of area, all across this tiny little nation of a hundred and twenty thousand people, so with that in mind, you have to understand just how massive something like this would be in in putting strains on people and making them make decisions and and coming to conclusions based on this kind of circumstance, and in a period where a lot of people were very religious and there wasn't a lot of explanations outside of, you know, the understanding of the everyday life, then a lot of people are going to look at this as maybe this is God's punishment for everything that's gone on. And eventually people, you know, start to think about this and start to consider their lot in life because of it. And obviously, something like this is a harbinger for a great deal of Welsh misery, which is about to happen. In early 1408, Gilbert Lloyd Talbot arrives in North Wales, marching an army to Harlech to put in place a siege on Harlech, the site of the Welsh government and the basis for Welsh legitimacy as an independent nation. It was a sign of how emboldened the English felt, ...being able to do this because this would mean that the English felt they had dealt with the French threat with negotiations over the last year and combined with the death of the leader of the Orleanist faction, Louis I. The nephew of King Charles VI, Louis, Duke of Orleans, was a key leader supporting the Welsh, but on November 23, 1407, he was murdered by a group of Burgundian supporters who effectively were thugs... And it came out later that Jean the Fearless, the Duke of Burgundy, had actually ordered the hit. It would be the final straw that would lead France into a civil war. However, for Wales, the more immediate disaster was that their last strong proponent in the French court was now dead. And the eventual war that would come sweeping in France and England in the end of the Hundred Years' War was still a couple of years too late to save Owen from what was about to happen. In a last act to meet their obligations, the French would eventually once again try and send troops across the Channel, or at least attempt to do so. In April 1408, the King of France agreed to pay for a complement of troops to be sent to Wales to assist in the war. This is at a point where both Harlech and Aberystwyth were under siege. Among these troops were 300 men at arms and 200 crossbowmen, so not an insignificant force, certainly not on the uh, level of what they had sent previously, but still something that might have actually been able to turn the tide or at least cause the English uh, enough harassment that they might regret sending forces to try and siege these castles. Unfortunately, these... Ships never got there. The uh, French themselves report that they were stopped at sea, and this would be something that would happen over the next year, where French forces and supplies trying to get to Wales are actually stopped by the English in the English Channel and are never able to get there, which then leaves Owen isolated. And uh, much of what was going to happen in king henry's court during this same period henry percy once again the earl of northumbria or formerly the earl had made yet another attempt to try and rouse the north against the crown unfortunately for him and unfortunately for owen it flopped rather hard and percy himself was killed in february of 1408 so had the french as i said earlier been able to get troops to wales who knows how much of a difference they might have made in 1408 But it might have given King Henry pause that he was not as secure as he thought. instead, this now allows him to be free to carry out his war against Owen, unencumbered by any hostile force from any direction, because the Scots, the Northerners, the French, they've all been dealt with, they've all been taken care of. And for the first time since Owen joined the fight, there are no other distractions to assist him against this massive force and finance of the English throne, which finally is able to spend and extract the demands it needs in order to carry out the war. At this point, I kind of feel the need to quote Game of Thrones. If you think this has a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention. Aberystwyth has been under siege for most of 1407 and now in 1408 continues to fight on. In total, they defended the castle for 16 months, a heck of a long time. Certainly not on par with some massive siege like of Constantinople or something like that, but by comparison, that's a heck of a siege and it's one that unfortunately comes to a bitter end for the Welsh. This Loss of this center combined with what will eventually be the loss of Harlech, these two significant centers of Welsh urban government, would be harmful to Owen's legitimacy and his ability to create a common cause with allies elsewhere without a central port to bring in troops, without a way to link himself to his ambassadors going elsewhere. It becomes very difficult to maintain that sense that he is not just basically a rebel, but actually a monarch. And the loss of these fortresses would also be demoralizing and both for the prince, obviously, but also for the people who had followed him. And especially when all of them must have thought, or at least most of them must have thought at one point that they were very close to a final victory, maybe even as recent as a year ago. And Even as the walls fell and the English enforced their unconditional surrender on Aberystwyth, the siege still saw many Welshmen trying to escape and make their way north to Helpo and and try and save Harlech. Those still loyal to the prince were not done trying to win their independence, and would continue to fight on more or less to the bitter end. The collapse of the Welsh forces in Aberystwyth, however, meant that Henry could now turn north into the spiritual homeland of Welsh resistance. The old kingdom of Gwynedd and Harlot Castle remained the final symbols of independence. Both Owen and Henry likely knew this, thus the battle would be just as fierce, the siege just as brutal, and the consequences for Wales as severe as they ever could be. It is at this point that a number of people who initially started to abandon the, c- the cause turned from a trickle to a flood. As you can imagine, the Welsh morale was likely crushed by the weight of what was happening. The losses were piling up, and I'm sure many realized that they may have been on the wrong side of this particular engagement, and you can imagine, given the choices and the options in front of them, what they probably chose to do. at factormeals.com slash welsh history pod 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active coming up on five minute news i'm anthony davis On the English border, losses were still stinging them as well. A sign that Henry himself was feeling better about his financial and political situation was shown in 1408, as a number of lords and minor nobles were able to gain tax relief because of the costs incurred due to the raids and the battles that had happened, which had ruined their ability to raise money from their peasants, something that would not have occurred two years earlier in the middle of the fight and in the middle of Henry's more desperate position. With the entire might, however, of the English army now facing Owen, his friends, his family, and followers at Harlech, doom was coming, and by the autumn of 1408, it was apparent that the war was in its final stages. The Welsh resistance had mostly collapsed. There was little record of troops' activity looking to hinder the English armies as they moved from place to place throughout Wales, and... At any time during this year of sieges, they may have been able to make a difference. The fact that they weren't even recorded as slightly bothering them shows that there was little left to fight. The English were able to move across the whole country with ease, and it was an ease of a force secure in its flanks. The arrival of the English army in full at Harlech in the winter of 1408-09 showed that the end was now here. There was little the Welsh could do to stop them, and much like Aberystwyth, health was not on the way. I wonder how often it must have felt for Owen and his family that this sign and this horror of what was to come, the end of Welsh monarchs 120 years earlier, had seen the princes killed, their families destroyed, and little left of them and their legacies remained. Would they themselves fall into this same situation at the hands of a vengeful English king. For Glendower, the dream dies here. For Wales, the last vestige of government independence away from England ends at Harlech, the site of so much that had created the rebellion. Keep in mind, Harlech was also the spot which the Tudors took back in the 1400, which more or less began the first major phase of the rebellion. Nine years later on, this isolated coast in North Wales would be where it meets its end. Interestingly, this is not even the only major siege at Harlech, as another notable one would happen 50 years later, but we'll get to that. The castles finally fell in the winter of 1409. We don't have a lot of information of how or why it finally fell, but we do know some important details. Owen somehow escaped. Some folktales suggest that he dressed as an elderly peasant and made his way through the English lines under this guise. It would not surprise me to find out his followers had spirited him out as he was considered the last symbol of Welsh resistance, and should he be caught, he would obviously be executed and in the process of his execution would be a symbol for English dominance to show itself again so thus having him not caught and not be there would be something that would be paramount of importance to probably both his family and to his followers. In the final fight, Edmund Mortimer, a symbol himself of English marcher resistance, was killed. His family, along with Owen's wife and heir, Griffith, were captured. They were then transported to the Tower of London, where, like so many others before them, they would be positioned and imprisoned and never allowed to leave again they would all die by the end of 14 and 15 and realistically this comes down to the fact that they're only being kept alive as a check for henry's the fourth and fifth against owen to keep him in line to keep him from stopping raising another army and going off in another rebellion and you can see how that would work in their favor. Certainly, monarchs across Europe didn't really care if they captured another monarchy's family. They didn't treat them with honor or dignity. Chivalry was for other people, that wasn't for them. And quite typically, as we saw with Llewellyn's family, for example, they would kill them and deal with them as harshly as possible. And certainly, there is no doubt they were, once they felt safe from Owen's ability to threaten them. Henry V effectively starved the women and children to death. So make no mistake, neither Henry IV nor V had any qualms about taking out the family that was causing them so much trouble. And the fact that these last few resistors were dealt with as harshly as they were, as women and children, certainly shows that the English monarchy had not forgotten their old habits. At some stage after the capitulation, Owen led a final mass raid on the English border towns. He was joined in these, I would call them revenge raids, by his cousins, the Tudors, and by Ris Thu, the leader of the defense of Aberystwyth, and likely one of those who fled the sieges along with the troops that were escaping. And probably that makes up a portion of the forces that Owen counted on for these raids. And let's be clear, they were raids. They weren't battles. They weren't fought as an open war. They were just effectively pillaging border towns that had already been hit over and over again, some of whom had actually signed peace deals with Glyndor to keep him away. So these sites like Shrewsbury shropshire and welshpool were all places that were very much targets but weren't necessarily keys to the war or somehow militarily important if anything they were just in the way and in the process hitting them over and over again did nothing more than leave them in the same way as the rest of wales was in a desperate state the in fact, these raids likely were a sad aftermath of the defeat rather than a sign of strength. In the end, Rhys was captured, tortured, drawn, and quartered in London for his part both in the raid and also his part in the war. Uh, Rhys Tudor, along with his brother, and Philip Scudamore were injured at Welshpool and then captured. They would later be executed in various places, Chester being one of them. And from this point on, the historical record of Owen Glendower comes to an end. 1409 is seen as the final end for the Welsh War of Independence, and few would argue that the results were, well, to be blunt, spotty at best. Yes, Owen had been able to create a success that none before him had been able to do in uniting all of Wales, He had created alliances with major countries that could help him. He created affiliations with Scotland, with France, with so many other ports of call across the way. He had advocates in the French court who were powerful men in Europe and were willing to fight for him. They brought their armies over to help win the battles and in the process got a major concession and truce out of the deal but the reality of it is is that for the welsh population of the time while yes it gave them a sense of independence and probably boosted morale in an area which hadn't seen a lot of positive things for a while the results were horror death pillaging You didn't necessarily have to be a member of any war band or fight any war to suffer from it. Much like what would happen so often in medieval warfare, peasants would be raided, women would be raped, people would be killed as bystanders as well as, you know, just random people standing out there. There would be losses of sons, of brothers, of fathers fighting for the cause of mothers and daughters also, in all likelihood. And in all of this, they basically end up back where they were, which is under English dominance and under the control of the Lancastrian kings. From this point on, the Welsh ability to carry on a defense of itself comes to a practical end. While there will be more rebellions and more uprisings of various types and sizes there will never be anything quite like this one and with it we see the end of that beginning of a dream that wales could become if not necessarily completely viably on its own would at least be able to defend itself would at least be able to be a part of the broader discussion of europe rather than being a part of england which is a discussion that continues to go on even to this day so for everything that has occurred we still see this one particular issue still confronting the welsh population even now and uh, with that we come to the end of owen as an active actor on the scene But now we get to talk a little bit more in the coming days about his legacy and the results of the aftermath of this and what it creates for Wales over the next century before the rise of the Tudors and the rise of a new kind of English monarchy. And with that, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. If you have any questions comments or concerns you can reach me at the welsh history podcast at gmail.com you can also speak with me on twitter at welsh history pod or come and join us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash welsh history podcast Uh, i thank you all and i hope you all have a great day we'll talk to you later take care bye this has been a distractions media production for more information you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com